Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Well, prom party, we have finally done it. I was really, really tempted to open this episode by being like, pig cunt. (laughs) But I didn't, except I did. Maybe let's not have the first sentence that comes out be one of the horrible things that Billy screams into the phone. (laughs) I mean, it's too late. It's already happened. (laughs) (laughs) We are finally finishing our trilogy of the Black Christmas films. If you don't know what we're talking about, two years ago we covered Black Christmas 2019 and had special guests Sophia Tacall and April Wolf, who wrote and directed the film. Last year we did Black Xmas 2006, much to Harmony's chagrin. Oh God, it's I. You know what? Let's do capsule thoughts on the trilogy at the end of the episode because I don't want to. I don't want to come out the gate swinging with negativity <laughs> by talking about that movie. But now we are talking about Bob Clark's. Famous, iconic, groundbreaking, genre-inventing Black Christmas 1974. Dare I say, with no hyperbole, this is maybe the best film we've ever covered on this podcast. I would say yes. I think if we're talking about films of importance, of impact, of quality. Of of content. Of content. Yeah, Black Christmas is pretty untouchable. character. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it is... So good and Mm -hmm. so effective. Uh Uh-huh. Even, I have seen this movie so many times, and every single time I watch it, I am still so uncomfortable and scared and nervous. Why is Billy so scary? He's so scary. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Yes, let's let's talk about that in a little bit, but... I'm so excited to be talking about the original Black Christmas because it's so good. (laughs) It's absolutely wonderful. So, Harmony, what was your introduction to Black Christmas? Um, That would be you. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) I believe, I I don't remember, but I remember I think I mentioned it whenever we did the original, whenever we did the first Black Christmas episode that we did, but I either saw it right before or right after 2019. That sounds right, actually. And you showed it to me, and I've seen it probably four or five times since then, so I'm watching it more than once a year. Because <laughs> it's always it's always on Shutter or it's always on Tubi. It's just around and very easy to watch. Um, but yeah, it's, it's also short. I think it's like an hour thirty eight. I think. Yeah, it's it, it's it, and it also flies by mm-hmm. like it's a crisp movie with no wasted time. Um, yeah, so that was my introduction. How about you? Yours is probably more interesting. <laughs> All right, so I saw Black Christmas for the first time when I was about 15. It was when I was starting to get really, really into slashers. And the reason that I was addicted to it was because I couldn't believe that this was made by the same guy who made A Christmas Story. Oh, yeah, that's such the trivia fact that people like to bust out Mm -hmm. if they think they know something but aren't that in the know. Right. That's like, 
in terms of relation to more my world, which is like retro video game, everyone's like, um, Super Mario Brothers 2, did you know it's Doki Doki Panic? <laughs> like, it's one of those facts that is such a common fact that if you spend more than five minutes in a culture, then it's like, oh, no, you know that, though. Yeah, it's You're like, very aware. did you know that Michael Myers' mask is actually William Shatner from Star Trek? Yeah, it's, it's like, just one yeah, of those know, where guys. it's like, a doy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bad ghost face trivia fact. Very much so. Um, but that's what drew me to it. And the first time I watched it, this movie gave me nightmares um, because yeah. – the sound of Billy on the phone is so upsetting uh-huh. in very, very hard to explain ways because there's so much happening. Um, so like that was terrifying. But m- above all else, I was floored by the content of this, of how women were allowed to be characters that even in the 2000s, I was really not seeing mm-hmm. in terms of their complexity. I mean, especially in the 2000s. Very much so. I just wasn't seeing women allowed to be this complex and messy. Mm-hmm. And the progressiveness of the story, especially with the abortion subplot, like could not believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became a very fast favorite. And I watch it every single year, multiple times a year. Mm-hmm. I have. We watched it twice yesterday. <laughs> we watched it twice yesterday because it was playing at a, a, a friend's dinner party. And we were like, well, there she is. Let's watch it again. Um, and uh, like I own a Just Bradford sweater. Shout out to Poltergeist and Paramours for allowing me to purchase that. It's one of my favorite pieces of clothing that I own. I wear it all the time. Like at least once a week. It's so comfy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just great because it's one of those. Horror things that I own were like, if you know, you know. Yeah. And that's my favorite type of thing to have. It's much more niche than, say, like, the shining carpet pattern. Right. Like, everybody knows what that is at this point. Yeah. Um, But if you see the hand sweater, you're like, oh, shit, Black Christmas. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, this is is an all-time favorite. And this movie is one of the ones that I would say is, like, fundamental to who I am as a person, especially as a film theorist, Mm -hmm. because this is one of those movies that really affected me at my core and made me want to learn everything that I could about it, hyper-analyze what the story means, how it's inspired things moving forward. Like, Black Christmas is one of those big ones for me. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> this just I – can, I can feel the energy of this coming off of you as a person whenever you get heated about stuff. Yeah. Like, you have the righteous <laughs> feminist indignation that came from this movie just in your whole existence. <laughs> yeah, like, the insufferable know-it-all feminist of, like, being a teenager, I think part of that still lives in me when I talk about Black Christmas because that's where it started for me. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, yeah, very I, – I, I love this. Um, but for those who somehow have missed Black Christmas or the two other movies that we covered – Here is your synopsis. Real short. During their Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a stranger. The end. That's the synopsis. I don't even... I mean, not to criticize a single sentence, but I almost feel like stalked isn't necessarily even correct. I don't think it is either. Harassed, yes. Um, Stalked, not necessarily. Maybe invaded? They're invaded by a stranger? That feels more correct. Yeah. Stalked feels like you're following someone. It's like, oh no, he's in the house. Yeah. (laughs) Spoiler alert, Billy's in the house the whole time. Eat your heart out. The call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, eat your heart out uh, when a stranger calls. Yeah, the Black Christmas did this first. But before we move on any further, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, 
you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. With any luck, we'll have fun new things to add to that in the new year. Yeah, definitely. I know that some of y'all have been asking about merch. I'm working on it. It's a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be, and we're making it happen. We're we're going really out of the way to make sure that it's accommodating and ethical and it's hard. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of complicated things. That that's an entirely different That's podcast. back-end shit. That's don't back-end worry shit. About you it. don't need to worry about it. <laughs> but uh all right, so let's dive into some of the context cuz 1974 was a long time ago and neither of us were alive. <laughs> yes. So We have not covered a movie that is this old on the podcast before, and as a result, we are not only before, like, the boom of teen cinema that, like, sex comedies brought in the late 70s, we're before, like, the advent of the blockbuster, we're before the proper establishment of the slasher genre. One of the only real contemporary teen films we even have around this time would be American Graffiti the year before. Mm-hmm. So as far as context in Black Christmas is concerned, there's not a lot to compare it to. Yeah, this is a movie that is sort of in its own category. Obviously, horror movies did exist. This comes out the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which is its closest contemporary in terms of a slasher. Definitely. But Black Christmas is what inspired John Carpenter to make Halloween, which we covered Halloween earlier this year. You can listen to that episode where we talk about that being kind of the perfection of the slasher genre. Um, There were films like Psycho and Peeping Tom that came before Black Christmas, but Black Christmas is what kind of laid the groundwork for John Carpenter to run. Like Black Christmas walked so Halloween could run. Mm -hmm. Like that's very much what happened here in that we started establishing sort of these archetypal characters of who survives and who doesn't. We started establishing this idea of the the masculine villain attacking all of the young women, Mm -hmm. the young women not being believed, the police being incompetent, which they just just are. So frustratingly incompetent. Fucking Nash is useless. Oh my God. He's the worst. (laughs) Oh, I can't stand him. (laughs) So in our Halloween episode, we talked about how that was such an effective jumping off point for slasher films to replicate in the 80s. Because it was taking terrors and bringing them home to the suburbs, which were seen as safe. This film is a lot more, um, I, I, I would say, like, punishing girls for going off to a liberal college, if you want to analyze it in, like, slasher canon retrospectively. Mm-hmm. But in its time, that is not the point. Very much. Um, so Thrillist did an article a couple of years ago about how Black Christmas sort of started the slasher boom. And there's a couple pieces that I wanted to cite because I think that's a really easy way to understand what's happening. Sure. So this is just like a back and forth comparison between Halloween and Black Christmas because I think people are far more familiar with Halloween. So it's an easy way to understand what's going on here. It's a, it's a nice transition. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't know Black 
about Black Christmas because it didn't play on TV right. like Halloween did. Like it's it's a Christmas movie and you don't show Christmas movies on TV if they're scary in the 90s and 2000s. Exactly. And it also didn't spawn a franchise. Like there are the two remakes of it, but it didn't continually run. But yeah, it doesn't uh, have like a franchise to it. It also doesn't have an easily merchandisable figure. So it didn't get the same treatment. Yeah, as Billy is Halloween. an eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. So Halloween, the spiritual successor to Black Christmas, has echoes of these themes. Young Michael Myers picks up a kitchen knife in 1963 after watching his teenage sister Judith fool around with her boyfriend. When he sees her later, this time alone and topless, he stabs her to death. The camera lingers on her nearly nude body, blood spreading all over her chest. At the end of the flashback, it's a shock for the killer to be revealed as a young boy in a clown costume. But it's even more shocking to arrive in 1978 to find that Michael Myers still acts upon his instincts with a child's impulsiveness. He returns to Haddonfield to hunt Laurie Strode and her friends, and like the killer in Black Christmas, Myers is clearly acting on a base desire to punish and control the bodies of women. He kills men as well, but they are treated as less valuable casualties in his single-minded pursuit. While Black Christmas plays more like a gruesome fable about the ominous ugliness of male entitlement, Halloween leans more into the darkness haunting suburbia. In the town of Haddonfield, where there are pretty white houses all in a row and no one locks their doors, evil can still be born. But the film makes pains to cement Myers as an otherworldly evil. Much like the killer in Black Christmas, Myers remains obscured. We can see his body, but we don't get a clear view of his adult face. He's constantly referred to as the boogeyman, and the films the characters are seen watching, such as The Thing and Forbidden Planet, seem to be reinforcing the notion that Myers is an alien, an intruder, an anomaly. And I love that distinction of like Michael Myers is being treated as like this, this singular evil, mm -hmm. this exception evil. Mm -hmm. Black Christmas is not about that. Black oh, Christmas no. is about how men ain't shit. Like <laughs> that is the core of this movie is men will fail women at every fucking turn. This movie, like there is... So many things happening around this college campus that don't even have to do with Billy. Obviously, there's the incompetence of the police. Mm -hmm. There is toxic boyfriends who will smash a tens of thousand dollar grand piano because they blew their exam. Oh, I can't wait to shit on Peter. It's um, going to be great. You have a girl who got raped like a week ago somewhere on campus. You had a teenage girl who was murdered the night before. There are bad things happening around that Billy has nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. It's just circumstances. Like, this is just a dark world where dark things happen. And also, Michael Myers is more deliberate in his stalking. Billy is very lucky in every opportunity that he does not get caught or that he is able to outfox or overpower his victims. Um, he's more of like an opportunist who just stupid his way to success in this film. Totally. And this film, though, has some of the greatest female protagonists in horror history. It really does. And I can't wait to talk about all of them. So oh, yeah. we're going to start with our final girl, and we're going to talk about Jess Bradford, played brilliantly by Olivia Hussey. She's amazing. She's incredible. And what's funny is that this is not my first Olivia Hussey. Um, she's in a production of Romeo and Juliet that mm -hmm. gets played a lot in like high school English Courses. The one with tons of Romeo butt. Yes, where she's crying, like whale crying a lot. Uh -huh. um, so that was my introduction to her. And I was like, wow, I, I don't know if I like her. And then I see her <laughs> in this and I'm like, oh, no, I'm obsessed with you. You're great. Uh, so how do you feel about Jess? I think she is. I mean, she's the final girl. So she's clearly the most fleshed out because we spend the most time with her. 
in terms of her getting screen time and in terms of her like lasting the longest, um, like there's certain characters like say Phil who doesn't really have as much of a defined character, but Jess is, she's, she's just, she's great. She's strong and does not really care about upsetting men. She, she, she's out to help herself Mm -hmm. and not in like a selfish way, just in an, like an independent way. No, you're absolutely right. And there is such a dignity to Jess because she's going through a lot. Like she's Uh got a lot of shit going on in her life outside of the fact that she's being harassed like a motherfucker at home. Oh yeah. Like usually when you talk about like the trauma of the final girl, it has to do with stuff that like the killer's doing and like the, uh, the, 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 the physical trials that she has to go through to survive. Most of this movie She's not going through those because Mm -hmm. she's not even aware that Billy's a thing for, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 80% of the movie, 85% of the movie. And so it's all like these personal struggles. It's, it's the threat of like a stalker on the phone. And then she's forced to stay on the phone with him because they need to trace the call. Like she's going through so many other things rather than actually being in physical danger. Yeah. So Jess is dealing with the fact that her boyfriend, Peter, who sucks. Um, She has gotten pregnant and she does not want to keep the baby because she's like, I have dreams. I have ambitions. I have things that I want to do. And mind you, she thinks she's also helping him out because he has dreams. And he's like, well, actually, uh, no, I want the baby. And she's like, well, that's too bad (laughs) because I fucking don't. And he even then puts the added pressure of like, well, then we need to get married. Let's get married and I'll marry you. And she's like, I'm not ready for that either. I'm leaving the conservatory. And He's been there for eight years, and it it really provides the question of, is he leaving the conservatory because, hey, I'm going to step up and I'm going to be a dad and I'm going to be a husband because that's what you're supposed to do? Or is he leaving because he fucked up playing in front of whatever school bigwigs he's doing for like an audition or a, a test or whatever it is? Because... He's sweating so much and they do not look impressed during his scene where he's playing the piano. So, okay. Yeah, we, we talked about this yesterday when we were watching it for the second time. So Peter is presented as this like, he's he's a pretty decent boyfriend for Jess. We learn very quickly he's not a decent boyfriend because he is not good under pressure and he's controlling and he fucking sucks. Most college boyfriends are fine. He's awful. So he's been at the conservatory for eight years. So it's implied that he's getting like his master's in music performance. Maybe he's just that bad. And he's like (laughs) Van Wilder. (laughs) I don't think that's the case. But after Jess is like, yeah, no, I'm getting an abortion. We're not having this child. I'm also not marrying you. Uh He has to do this big performance and he is sweating through it. He doesn't play very well. And it's presented in a way where we're supposed to be like, oh, look how hard this is for him look how emotionally distraught he is that's why he's performing badly when in my head i'm like if you've been at a conservatory for eight years you should know how to pull it together and get through a six minute suite or whatever you're playing and be fine just tune out the world and just play right clearly you ain't that good (laughs) peter i don't want to be one of those assholes just like shut up and play but (laughs) also uh we, we we do learn from Jess's own admission, he has a flair for the dramatics. Yeah, he's um, such a drama queen. He takes, like, a mic stand and destroys a grand piano, which is, like, the artsy exp- the artsy rich boy version of wall punching. Right. Like, it is so much more expensive to replace this grand piano than it is, like, some drywall. Uh-huh. Obviously, both are terrible. But, like, if your rage causes you to ruin 
such an expensive instrument, like you have bigger problems. Yeah, it's not like crashing a guitar where it's like, oh, that was 120 bucks. Right. It's a fucking piano. Yeah. You, you have to hire people to move that into your home. You have to hire people to tune it. Yeah, that too. <laughs> you can tune your own guitar. <laughs> so yeah, Peter sucks. Um, He ends up being kind of the front runner for who they think is in in charge of the harassing phone calls. Well, like that's the thing I actually really like about Peter though. Like I don't like Peter. He sucks, but like, I like him as like an element because he's a great red herring. Oh, he's a great. Well, no, that's the thing. He's a good red herring for like the first, like 30 minutes of the movie. And then we learned very quickly. It could have been him. Two yeah. different ways where like the girls at home, I think it's Jess and Phil figure out, Oh no, he was there during one of the obscene phone calls. It couldn't have been him, but they do not convey that to the cops later. So there's some people who have the knowledge of that and some people who don't. And that matters Mm -hmm. because in the end, when like, spoiler, fucking Peter dies, she stabs him with a fire poker and they go, oh, well, she got him. She got the killer Mm -hmm. because they didn't know. Yeah. And it, that, that does it. It's just oh, it's so smart. This movie's so smart. Uh-huh. Um, I love it when a movie makes sense. Yeah. Just just bring it all together. Cut, fill in your plot holes. Make the character motivation make sense. Make the plot points make sense. It's fucking a masterpiece at that because there's just no fucking dangling threads or anything. No loose participles. And looking into this movie with Jess as our final girl, I also love that the first example, like the, the true to form and formula final girl is not a virgin. Mm-mm. Jess is she's the opposite of a virgin. <laughs> she is fertile myrtle here. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I I have always found that to be really interesting in how once the formula went forward through like the suburban lens of John Carpenter, that that aspect went away. And then suddenly sex became something that is demonized mm-hmm. um, when Jess clearly has had sex multiple yes. times. Which is like I said it earlier and I think it's worth reiterating that this movie, if you look at it, like, if you reverse engineer it in a post-Halloween scope, this movie reads completely differently than looking at it at its own time in its own place as its own thing. It is Absolutely. night and day different. Well, especially because the first one to die in their house is Claire, who is the good girl virgin. Mm-hmm. And she gets made fun of by Barb for being kind of prissy. And then she dies. Like, she's the first one to die. No, Barb should be the one to die. Right. Like, if we're following slasher rules, Barb should have been the first. And she's not. She's, like, one of the last ones Barb, to go. Barb is either the one who should die first by normal slasher logic. She's the Tina in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. Or Barb should make it sort of to the end because she's the tough girl. That's true. But, like, Barb also gets really drunk and passes out. And it's just not a factor for half the time that she's alive in this movie because she's sleeping. Let's talk about Barb though. So Barb is played by Margot Kidder who in the 70s um, and into the 80s like she was Lois Lane. Yes. So like that is a Com- big deal. 180 from Barb. Yes. We talk about Barb a lot because we love her. We love Barb. And the reason being is because Barb is an asshole and there is a difference between an asshole and a bitch character. Yes. And I think it's one of the, like, you know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. And Barb is an asshole. And women do not get to be assholes very often. Yes. Especially ta- in horror. We talked about this, again, when we did Halloween, because those these are like companion episodes, essentially. But we talked about how PJ Souls in that movie yeah, is Linda's an asshole. An asshole. <laughs> Linda's an asshole. She's not a bitch. Barb is an asshole. And I think it's really interesting to look at Barb 
for like the very brief moment at the very beginning of the movie. Oh, she's when so she's, mouthy. When she's not an asshole yet, though. Oh, yeah, okay. There's this like there's this like opening five minutes where Barb is almost a different person. Where like, yeah, she's having some drinks, they're having fun at their Christmas party, and then she gets a phone call from her mom, and that changes her entire everything. Because she also starts drinking. Way heavier for and, days. Yes. And once Barb starts drinking, like you we get this idea. That because so there's two alcoholic characters in this movie, mm-hmm. um, but we'll focus Barb's first. Barb's alcoholism is presented in a way that's like kind of a cry for help, mm-hmm. where it's like she's going through something and she has a lot of feelings and she doesn't know how to regulate these emotions or the anger that she's feeling. So she's drinking, and the problem is that drinking is just exacerbating her emotions and she's getting angry and she's getting feisty and she's getting mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially because like once Claire disappears. There's this like internalized feeling where Barb thinks that everyone's blaming her for it. Because she was mean to her. Yeah. yeah. So she has this like weird guilt going on where no one can find Claire because, spoiler alert, Claire is in the attic suffocated with plastic wrap in yes. one of the most memorable moments of this entire movie. It's so effective and they keep cutting to it. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many shots and they're all good and they're all like very visually compelling. Of either inside and looking past her, like, suffocated corpse in the attic, or shots from the outside where you can clearly see her. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so close. Like, it's just like, where is she? It's like, oh, she's right there. And you can almost see her. And I think that's that just adds to the terror of this movie of you never know, like, what could be right there behind you. Because so often horror is presented as, like, this big thing. Like, you think about, like, a Jason Voorhees. Like, he is a hulking beast Mm -hmm. that is just towering at you. Whereas Black Christmas is, like, it's, like, just outside of your periphery. And that's really scary. You think it's my fault, don't you? Barb, stop it. Don't shit me. That's what you're all thinking. Why don't you just come right out and say it? You think that I drove her away? And if she's dead, you're going to blame me. Barb, for God's sake. Well, that's what we're all thinking. Why doesn't someone just come right out and say it? Barb, dear, you've had too much to drink. Mr. Harrison... I don't give a shit about Mr. Harrison. I'm sick and tired of everyone in this house insinuating stuff and not coming out with what they mean. Barb, why don't you go upstairs and lie down for a while? Shut up. And you leave me alone. God damn you. You think it's my fault, don't you? You've been implying it all afternoon. Barb, you're drunk. Go to bed. So, you know, Barb's alcoholism is clearly rooted in like a sense of like self-loathing and guilt and frustration and a a lot of things. But then on the flip side, we have Mrs. McHenry, who's kind of like the like the house mother for Mm -hmm. the sorority. And her drinking is presented as like pathetic and comedic yeah like she hides alcohol all around the house which is funny because it is like all of the girls farce levels of ridiculous the girls in the house drink she also drinks why are you hiding it i guess maybe so they can't steal it because barb might (laughs) i think it's like a little bit of like she's hiding it from the girls so that they don't take her alcohol but also it's so fascinating to me how her hiding of her alcoholism and, like, having alcohol everywhere is so clearly meant to be funny. Mm-hmm. But, like, there are videos that you can watch right now on TikTok of people who are essentially teaching kids how to find where their alcoholic parents are probably storing their stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, hey, here's how you unscrew the vent uh, for the air conditioner. Or, hey, here's how to tell if a label 
on a can has been taken off and repurposed to cover a beer can. Mm -hmm. Like things like that exist because that is very much an alcohol, like a severe alcoholic thing is to have this elaborate hiding. Mm -hmm. And it's wild that that's presented as funny. I mean, it was Um, the seventies. We weren't really concerned about stuff like that. Like Mm -hmm. this, this is times when you had to just have like wild stag parties and people would swing and you would just, everyone had a bar in their living room. And this is just, this is normal. This is like such a normal facet of like particularly the early seventies. Yes. I'd say this is probably like the last time where it's like really, really common. Once we got to the 80s, I'd say that like you started to see a divide in whether or not this was normal or not. Mm -hmm. But I just I think it's so interesting that like she is consistent, whether she's drinking or not. Her personality is the same. Mm -hmm. And I like it like to and to contrast that with Barb. I think that's so cool from like an element from a storytelling element, because I don't think Barb's like this all the time. This Mm -hmm. isn't who Barb is. This is just the Barb that we happen to see in the movie because we happen to catch her during like the three-day window where this is what was going on. We're catching Barb during a difficult time because it is the holidays, because there is some whack shit going on, and because she has been drinking heavily. I feel like the rest of the year, Barb would be like our best friend and we would be so excited but you're right. We're catching her at probably her lowest moment of the year. Uh-huh. She's and, having a bad time. And like it, get a little meta with it, knowing what happens to like Margot Kidder throughout her life. Like this is so much sadder. Yeah, it really is. So I love Barb. Barb's one of my favorites. Barb is great. And we also love somebody who has a fashionable choker. Big mm-hmm. fan. A very thick choker. Oh, it's so, and I think it's like velvet. It's uh-huh. so, it's, so good. The velvet makes it festive. <laughs> um, and then arguably one of the other like breakout stars of this is Andrea Martin as Phil. Mm-hmm. I love her in this. She's so sweet. She's very much the mom friend of this group. Yep. Uh, so of course I have a soft spot because I love mom friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this character is so interesting for her considering that Andrea Martin would go on to play a lot of brash broad roles uh-huh. and she's so sweet in this movie and that just fascinates me. It's one of those things that's again interesting to look at only like rewinding. Yes. I mean because Andrea Martin is in Black Xmas 2006 where yeah. she plays kind of like the drunk house mother and she is like a fed up with those royal girls. bitch yeah, in yeah, it yeah. and it's great. One of the only times I laugh in that movie is because of her. Oh yeah, she's hilarious. <laughs> um and, and it's just really interesting to see her play this like very kind of like mediator type role in this where she's trying to get everybody to like come on guys like it's Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> like that seems to be her her constant energy throughout all of this. Um and I like that to me, this is such a believable portrayal of a sorority because I think a thing that movies get wrong, like a lot of times, mm-hmm. is they present sororities as carbon copies of each other. They turn into Heather's, Ashley's, Debbie's. Like, that's how sororities are presented. Where you're molded by the people around you and where, you all become like a singular yeah, entity. Yeah, where everyone's kind of the same and dresses the same and looks the same and has the same personalities and the same likes. I think the very elite sororities that people tend to uh, get horrifying nightmare images of. Oh, like, like Bama Rush girls and stuff? Like, yes. Yeah, that... I think that like, you know, the 1%, I, I choose my words care- very uh Precisely (laughs) when I say that. I think that those people are like that, but I'm going to assume most aren't. But yeah, most sororities are not like that. Most sororities have a lot of different personalities and people and just characters. 
And so I really like that as well because I do think that one of the biggest problems that we have in especially sorority horror movies mm-hmm. is they do become really samesy. Like that's one of my biggest complaints with Black X Mix 06 is they all just feel like different shades of bitch. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I know there's also discourse going on around like the name and usage of bitch. Um, I mean it as as the slur, like because that's what those characters are supposed to be. I mean, that's what everyone always praises that for because they like the bitchy energy of that movie. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the things where like, oh my god, this cast and they're all being mean girls. Like that, that is an appeal of that, that is movie. an appeal that for is a, a lot of selling people. point yeah. of that movie. The difference is because um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Black Xmas ever, but certainly before we get to like our capsule thoughts on the whole trilogy towards the end, um, that movie. Everyone feels like they're like that every day, as mm-hmm. opposed to the closest you get to that is Barb, who is not like this every day. Mm-hmm. She's just like that in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes significantly more compelling characters from a writing and viewing aspect. I agree. And I also think that we are seeing, in my opinion, with Jess, we are seeing her at her strongest and most defiant because she has to be she has to be she's been pushed into those circumstances which i find very interesting because i don't think that she is usually this like confident and sure of herself and like willing to like take a stand Mm -hmm. i do think that just just based on how she interacts with some of the girls in the house i think she is naturally a little bit more passive yeah but she's been thrown into a circumstance where like that's not an option yeah like even if you just want to look at it in terms of like the obscene phone calls when she's on the phone with a lot of these, she's like, oh, my word. Oh, my goodness. And don't get me wrong. They're gross and they're horrifying. But then you have someone like Barb, who is the strong, surly city person. Oh, and person. She, she immediately is, like, antagonizing right back. Exactly. And I don't – I think the version we have of her on the phone is how she probably normally deals with adversity because it's not – personal it feels more like you know someone's making blind phone calls and that happens to be directed at her versus stuff with peter who is directly affecting her life and that's where she has to focus her energy and that's where she has to like step up in a way that like she normally isn't that makes a lot of sense especially because he's also getting increasingly more possessive throughout the film oh yeah i mean he breaks in through their window (laughs) yeah peter you have issues dude like okay the shot this is really understated i think but um and and probably not super visible on like maybe older releases of it but like you have the moment towards the end where he's like trying to like de-ice the window with his hand he has such a creepy smile when he's peering in through the window and you slowly see it like come into view Mm -hmm. like he looks so scary yeah he looks really really creepy and intimidating and i hate peter Mm -hmm. um but there is one redeeming man in this entire movie and it's John Saxon. Oh, like <laughs> he's the only. He's trying one. real hard. He really is. I mean, and again, like a cab always, but he's the one cop who actually listens to them. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that because no one else has listened, because like this movie, the 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 true core of it outside of men ain't shit is that the cops are not here to help you. No, because they are doing all of their due diligence, they being the sorority, of like, this is fucked up, please help. This is fucked up, please help. Mm -hmm. This is super fucked up, please help. And they're just being written off as like, oh, they're just being Women are hysterical. Women are hysterical. This girl's probably not missing. She's probably with her boyfriend. Or she's probably one of your, you know, a neighboring frat or something like that, praying a prank on you. Or just like any excuse to dismiss things. Yeah, they do not want to take them seriously at all. And John Saxon is the only person who does and he genuinely is trying to help them, but he's 
the one good apple in a spoiled bunch. So mm-hmm. there's really not all that much that he can do because he's he's outnumbered. At the very least, he's doing his job, which is what he's <laughs> supposed to at the very it's, least. And that's the thing. It's like the movie presents him as like a hero and the heroic thing he's doing is his fucking job description. Uh-huh. Yeah, this... Fuck cops. <laughs> and like, here's... The issue is, unfortunately... Maybe, I, I don't know what position he has. I want to believe that part of I think of he's it, a lieutenant. Part of his job should be firing Nash. <laughs> Sergeant Nash sucks eggs. I hate him. He's the worst. He doesn't listen. He's so dumb. He's got an answer for everything, and it's always the wrong answer. He also does absolutely everything wrong. Like, when he gets very specific instructions from John Saxton, hey, don't tell the girl that the call's coming from inside the house. And then he goes like, well, I'll try not to. Um, you know, please just step outside. And then he's like, fucking fine. You're being hysterical and you're not listening to me. Anyway, the calls from coming from inside the house, go outside. Right. <laughs> like just, It's like you did the one thing you were specifically told not to. Yeah, he or, sucks. Or you get to the end where Claire's dad like goes into shock and it's like, Nash, take care of her. And he turns off the lights and leaves. Yeah, that's not helping anybody. Like, what? Oh, my God, he's the worst. Again, like, they thought, they thought that they got the killer, but they didn't search the attic. They didn't, like, secure the grounds at all. And then they all left with just one cop outside. And they've already proven if you leave a cop outside, he's not helpful because another cop got his throat slit. Yeah. (laughs) Sergeant Nash, could I speak to you for a minute? Yeah, sure, Lieutenant. What's this? Well, that's the number at the sorority house. Felicia? Yeah, it's a new exchange. F.E. New exchange? Yeah, Felicia. One of the girls that was in this afternoon gave it to me. She gave it to you? Yeah. Nash, I don't think you could pick your nose without written instructions. It is just so not subtle at all in this movie, which is another reason why I respect it so much that Bob Clark had no interest in presenting the police as competent in any way, shape or form. He was like, no, y'all suck. And I'm going to show how bad you suck. Yeah. And like, that's not the most common thing during this time. Usually if you portray the cops as sucking, they're like sort of corrupt or if they're, or they're portrayed as like bumbling comedic characters. This is just like, Hey, you're bad at your job. Like, it's just real direct about it without it being any more than, like, you suck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's really telling to me that the cops are just as hazardous to them in this movie as Billy. Um, and Billy is credited in this movie as the Prowler. He's only been, you know, associated and He's named Billy. as Billy in hindsight. I mean, it's um, like Michael Myers is the shape. It's like, right. no, his name is Michael. They say his name is Michael right. in the movie. They say Billy his name says Billy. his name is Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the police are just as much of a, of a hazard as Billy is. Obviously, he's the one who's doing the actual killing, but the cops are doing absolutely nothing to prevent the killing from happening or keeping them safe. If anything, they're exacerbating things and making it worse. I mean, that's the only reason Billy can get away with stuff as long as he does. Mm-hmm. Is because people just keep doing the right thing for him to sneak in kind of really clumsily because like, okay. We've spent very little time with Billy. Let's talk about him. Um, the worst. Billy is 
such a good villain because he's so unpleasant. Like, it's not really clear in this movie what is wrong with Billy. Mm -hmm. Um, I would assume it's some form of schizophrenia and a cocktail of other things. Mm -hmm. But Billy is not a mastermind. Mm -hmm. He's not really even wanting to do the things that he's doing because he shows remorse. Mm -hmm. He is just happening into the right circumstances to kill people who are already accounted for going somewhere else and showing up missing. Mm -hmm. He just happens to get someone when no one's around. Like, he is so... He's lucky. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what he is as a villain. Like, he's chaos, and he just happens to not get caught. So I have a question for you, because I've heard a lot of schools of thought on this. Why do you think he's calling them? You know, I've never really thought about it. I don't even know how he got their phone number. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to assume, okay, so he's calling from the house mother's phone upstairs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess if this is anything like my grandparents or something, they had like a piece of notebook tape paper, like taped to the wall or like to the side table or something of important phone numbers to call if they needed them. I'm going to guess that's where that came in. Mm -hmm. But he's probably just like, oh, there's a phone number. I'm going to call that one. So that's kind of the school of thought that I fall under is that he got the number and that's just the only number he knows to call yeah, he because it was written there or yeah. he found it or maybe, who knows. Maybe, he, maybe, there's, maybe there's a bunch of other numbers he calls and they don't answer because he's just punching in random numbers. I don't know. This is the only one that's proven to work. Exactly. We don't know if he's calling other places. Um, that very well could be a thing. And maybe he's continuing to call this maybe, number because people are answering. Maybe Yeah. Maybe other people hang up on him quickly and these are the only people who will actually sort of indulge him. Mm -hmm. Um but, but, but what are the other schools of thought on this one? Because I don't really know what they might be. So the other school of thought that I very much also believe in, I think, because I do think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, because there's the answer of like, well, why is he calling? And some people are like, oh, it's part of it. Like he wants to like fuck with them mentally before he kills them or put them on edge or whatever. That's a, that's a, a an explanation people have given. The one that I tend to believe in is... He, he calls the number because it's the one that he knows. But mm -hmm. what's more interesting to me is less about why he's calling and more about what he is saying. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, like, the, he is desperately trying to be heard. And, like, this is kind of his version of a cry for help because he is very unwell. Like, oh, yeah. something I mean, is extremely wrong Everything here. he's saying wrong is probably just all of the darkest thoughts in his head. Yeah, and he just needs to get them out of his head. And screaming it into the phone and hoping somebody will listen. I mean, it's it's things that I say to you all the time. Like, I will see something, like, you know, on, like, a news report, or I'll have a thought, and I go, hey, um, I'm just gonna say something out loud because I need to get it off my chest, and you're in the room, and you can hear it because otherwise it's ricocheting around inside of my head like a stray bullet, and it's just gonna tear my brain apart. So I need someone to actually hear my thought to prove that it's real. Yeah, it feels to me like Billy is having intrusive and impulsive thoughts, and he's just saying them out loud into the phone. So, like, when Barb is on the other end, that's why it suddenly gets very, very sexual, because mm -hmm. she antagonizes him back. Well, and so he knows now, like, oh, this is the person that I talked to to get these weird thoughts uh, out of my head. Mm -hmm. And, like, he has this th – that thing is, when he talks to Barb at the beginning, it seems like one of the most clear moments he ever has when he goes – I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, he has such clarity when he says that, but 
I think I tweeted this out last year, actually, which is Black Christmas is such a timeless film that women will be going about their business and then some man will just enter their lives, tell them how much they want to fuck them and then try to kill them for not giving them the attention they want. But that's specifically (laughs) what this movie also is about. Like outside of the men are shit, outside of the cops are not here to help you. The presence of Billy is so painfully relevant even today, which is why like I did like that in Black Christmas 2019, it gets turned into like harassing text messages mm-hmm. because that Updated. very much is how yeah. many men antagonize and harass women today. I mean, we are both women on the internet. They, they send dicks, yeah. We, we've been there. They it's send their awful. three out of 10 dicks. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, and they send their threats and they send all of those things mm-hmm. through through a text message. But like... The the phone calls that Billy gives are so upsetting because you can actually hear the just the venom and the rage and the the sincerity in his voice. Mm -hmm. And it's really upsetting. And then something that you even pointed out um, is that he peaks the audio. Oh, yeah, because that is such a very powerful use of like the cheap equipment that they have, because this movie Mm -hmm. was not made for a lot of money. No, no, no. It had a low Um, budget. I think if you had had better equipment making this movie, I don't know if Billy would be quite as scary as he is because when he screams, like specifically in like the the run up to the climax. His like weird cough scream. Yeah. It peaks the audio. It like blows the mic out Mm -hmm. and it is so much more upsetting than if it was clear. Yeah. It's way like because the times when Billy is clear on the phone, like when he tells Barb, I'm going to kill you, he almost sounds somber. Mm -hmm. Like, it sounds like he's relegating, like, I'm going to kill you. And it's like he's accepting it for himself. Mm-hmm. Whereas when he's screaming or when he's throwing his voice and imitating, like, the woman, um, when all of that is going on, like, it sounds like we're listening to the the ravings of a madman. Uh-huh. And anytime it peaks the audio, it is just, like, this knee-jerk reminder of like how serious he is yeah how intense he is and how dangerous he is because it is so threatening and like you can't imitate this like you you can't like there are people who i've heard imitate Ghostface. sure there are people that i have heard imitate you know even like the call is coming from inside the house hey, any of that you want to hear me imitate jason sure you're welcome. That was great. Thanks. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but like you can't imitate Billy. You just can't. There's so much happening on the other end. And that's, I think, what makes him so scary because you can't place it. He mm-hmm. sounds like one person. He sounds like three people. He sounds like a conversation. He sounds like a direct threat. Like Because there are times where Jess is on the line where she has to stay on the line and mm-hmm. listen to him. And she sounds like she's just observing a conversation mm-hmm. because he's just talking to himself. And it is so upsetting and scary because we know as the viewer, he's so close to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, like Black Christmas to me is like the ultimate, like don't go upstairs kind of room because we know the threat that the audience doesn't. So the entire time we are on edge knowing what is coming and like that they are clueless to it. And that is exhausting and scary. So I, so I have two thoughts about this movie. Um, one of them is that when Jess retreats to the basement running away from Billy and you can hear him just blowing the audio out entirely, like it's brick walling it um, and he's pounding on the door. That to me 
is what I think people think Jack Nicholson sounds like in The Shining. A hundred percent, yes. Like, like, Jack Nicholson wishes that he had the intensity of Billy. Yeah, like, and clearly that's what Kubrick wanted, because if he didn't like it, he would have made him redo it. But that movie has never, first of all, I don't get scared, but like, I think Jack Nicholson is so much more funny than he is scary in that movie. Billy is so fucking upsetting, and he's so much more intimidating than anything in that film. And two, this movie, aside from like the accoutrements and the setting and the music and all of these other little things that make it festive, um, in a really dark way, in a, in a real black Christmassy kind of way, um, Billy's phone calls where he's arguing with himself feels like a family fight at the holidays mm-hmm. in the darkest way possible. Yeah, it's warped. Hello? And a lot of this movie, to me, feels a lot about, like, men's desire to control women. Mm -hmm. Because when Billy, like, Billy is trying to enact some sort of control and it happens to be a sorority. So it becomes a man trying to control the situation with women. The cops are trying to maintain their own status quo. They're not taking people seriously. They are controlling the situation. And then with Peter and, and how he relates to Jess, a lot of times it feels like, his desire to like marry Jess and have the baby is a lot less about actually wanting to be a father and having a child and more about wanting to control her and not liking the fact that like she can make decisions without him Mm -hmm. because he even like when she even tells him I'm going to have the abortion, he's like, why would you do that without consulting me? And she's like, I wasn't even going to tell you. Yeah. Um, and that to me, like this movie came out a year after Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's horrific that we are now uh, assessing this movie when Roe v. Wade has basically been null and void for mm-hmm. months now. And that makes me want to fucking throw up. Um, but this movie has so many interesting themes going on around control. And I think the fact that all of the women in this movie are not quote unquote, socially acceptable women by society's standards is so fucking groundbreaking and it's also disgusting that we seldom see characters this complex even today yeah like well these girls are going to college and they're they're learning like liberal arts and and feminist theory and this is how they become free thinkers when they should clearly according to men be in the kitchen making them a sandwich because that joke still has not gone away ever no and it feels like billy's phone calls are almost like what's interesting is it's like the way that morality is presented in most slasher films is that like the slasher or whatever is presented as the punishment for, you know, having sex or doing drugs or drinking or Mm -hmm. whatever. This movie, it seems like it's presenting the idea of like, Oh, being harassed by Billy is 
the 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 payback that these women are getting for being you know, independent thinkers are being whatever, but the movie itself is telling you that that's fucked up and that should yeah. not be okay. Oh yeah. Like, okay. So, um, in a post Halloween world, there is some sort of, uh, of theming. There's a formula, there's a take, there's all of these elements that go into who dies in what order and what their personality is like that dictates when they die mm-hmm. versus this, where all of the subtext isn't really with the women or who they are as people, it's all the stuff that surrounds them. Yeah, they're, the, they're part of a man's world. That is what all of the subtext and morality to this movie is built around. Absolutely, because the women, like, we know who they are. Like, that is all presented on Front Street. When Jess finds out that the calls are coming from inside the house and they're like, yeah, you should probably leave, she says no. She's like, no, I'm staying and I'm going to be here to protect my sisters and I'm going to fight for them. Obviously, she doesn't know that Barb and Phil are already dead. Yeah. RIP to them. That sucks. But the sentiment but, like, is still there. The sentiment is still there. She is like, yeah, no, because everyone else has failed at this point to protect us. Like, we protect us and I'm going to be there for them and I'm going to stand guard and keep them safe and I'm going to fight. And I think that that is so admirable because, like, again, this movie is, like, giving us all of the slasher formula before the slasher formula existed, and then also at the same time, like, in-universe kind of commenting on the slasher formula that didn't exist yet. Like, this movie is so smart. Yeah. So there's also a really wonderful article that was published on Morbidly Beautiful about Black Christmas that I wanted to share a piece from. Uh, This piece goes really in-depth on kind of the police failure, but there was a little section towards the end that I thought was really wonderful that I wanted to share. Mm Mm-hmm. And it says, so Bob Clark had a backstory mapped out for Billy, but the deliberate exclusion of it in the film speaks volumes. It doesn't matter what Billy's past was like. What matters is that he is now senselessly killing women and that he is a monster for doing it. His monstrous acts are the focus, not his past. The exclusion of Billy's backstory also allows for Bob Clark to keep the focus on the sorority sisters and tell their stories as opposed to dwelling on the killer. Billy might be the killer, but this is not Billy's film. The film belongs to Jess, Barb, Phil, and the other sorority sisters. It allows Clark the time to build upon their characters and give them the rich texture that they deserve instead of building up the killer and making the victims paper-thin caricatures. The viewers care about these young ladies, and that makes their peril all the more chilling to watch. Okay, yes, but like, that's precisely what I fucking hate about the 2006 version. Yeah, okay, so... We did our episode, and I think now is a good time to jump into kind of our capsule thoughts about the subsequent remakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that my feelings have definitely changed since our episode last year. Oh, yeah? <laughs> in, in a similar way that you made me go from being very positive on 10 Things I Hate About You to being now, like, n- neutral or a centrist on it. Mm. Um, I am fully in the camp of I fucking hate Black Christmas 2006 and you dragged me there kicking and screaming. Okay, so like I I, I poisoned you. I was a lethal dose of poison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Okay, so um, so we did our episode last year, obviously. And I think by calling it the worst film we've ever covered on this podcast, I was too generous. You... I think we're trying to be very balanced because I think oh. I th- here here's the I thing. was trying real hard to be like diplomatic and fair. Yeah. I and fucking hate this movie. And that's what I'm saying. Like I'll pe- I'll peek back the curtain a little bit. We know that people oftentimes 
attach their identity to a lot of the films that they like. So if somebody says they don't like a movie, it sort of feels like, oh, are they not liking me? So we try to be really careful with how we talk about movies that we don't like. But when it comes to Black Christmas 2006, now that you've pointed out all of the things about it that I don't like, it's all I can see. Um, the second that Agnes is introduced, all I can think about is how transphobic it is and how obnoxious it is and how harmful it is to quote unquote clockable trans women. And it really fucking upsets me on like a very visceral level. Yes. So. All right. Uh, this is this is no slight against anybody who's a fan of this movie. This is no no personal. Yeah, attack. No, I get it. I, I, I say, get it. <laughs> I say that with no hyperbole. Black Xmas 2006 is one of the worst horror sequels slash remakes. Because, like, that's kind of a thing that we do here. Like, like in, in terms of horror, sequel slash remake is kind of its own category. Mm-hmm. And I think of this as a trilogy just because we've done it as a trilogy on the podcast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's so bad because the original is such a masterpiece. Yeah. It's so perfect. And so good. Like, I I would say top 10 horror films of all time. Mm-hmm. But the 2006 version almost feels like it's trying and, and failing to make the original worse. And, like, I guess the best thing about it is it shows how good the original one is. Mm-hmm. But it's like you take Billy, who is a madman in the original. We don't understand what he's saying. We don't understand what he's talking about. We don't understand his motives. We are just sort of left to piece together what that means in our own mind, which will inherently lead to better discussions and also go into far darker places than the film actually ends up going in its runtime. Mm -hmm. In the remake, Billy's just a silly little guy who makes angel Christmas cookies out of human flesh and... This movie does what I fucking hate about the Halloween series, where no longer is this just like, oh, he's a guy who came into your house. No, everything has to mean something. Mm -hmm. And everything has to be a little wink and a nudge and a nod. And it all has to have this poetic wraparound that makes it feel like the 2006 version wants to be a sequel. Like, it's like like a college writing course 101, where everything has to have more profound meaning than it actually is, where... Michael Myers is not just a guy. Laurie's his sister. And then sometimes there's a cult. And sometimes there's a... It's, it's got to be more deep meaning than just a crazy guy doing crazy things. And in this one, it's like, oh, no, Billy is has a troubled backstory. And Billy has a sister who was just mentioned as a part of a nursery rhyme. But now she's a real person. And she is a big fucking joke. And... Christmas is not just when he happened to sneak into this house. Now it's pivotal to his backstory. And all of it has to mean something more than just th- than just the chaos of the world. We, we are trying to apply logic to an illogical person. And the fact that he doesn't make sense is what makes him so effective and so scary. And we're stripping all that away. For the sake of camp, which I think, I think, that camp is kind of like becoming this, this catch-all for genuinely bad movies that you enjoy because, you know, they're fun. But that doesn't make them less bad. Right, and I I agree with you. And I think that it's totally fine to like movies that are bad. I love movies that are bad. Like, I love Encino Man. That is 
fundamentally a bad movie. I don't care. I like it. It makes uh-huh. me happy. But I can own the fact I like this movie and it's bad. And I think a lot of people don't know how to hold both of those truths. And then it turns into this, well, it's actually camp or, oh, it's actually a metaphor for whatever the fuck thing was going on in the aughts. And that's not to say that that's not the truth for some movies. A lot of movies from the time period are absolutely metaphors for the aughts. I mean, we'll likely never get to talk about it on this show, but the entire torture porn genre is a response to the actual, like, criminal torture that we were doing of people during the war, uh, like, on the quote-unquote war on terror. Like, that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. To me, though, Black Christmas 2006, like, completely undercuts why Black Christmas 1974 was so important because it stops being about the women. It stops being about their survival and it turns into yet another slasher film where we are rooting for the man to kill them all. We want to, like these characters are so miserable that we don't want them to survive. We want to see them all get killed because they're such bitches. And like we talk about that. And there's five of them. Yeah, and like we talk about that in terms of Barb. Like Barb is not a bitch, she's an asshole. And like- that's two very different energies and it like it just feels super misogynistic like 2006 feels like cattiness it doesn't and like that's not fun like there is some camp elements to it i think that's why i was invested in it for as long as i did but the more i hear like your criticisms and then watch it through that lens oh, and I just- it becomes Like, I can't ignore it. Oh, and I just keep coming up with reasons to have problems with this movie. And if I voice them in the wrong company, then people go, well, you just understand it because it's camp. Which is such bullshit. That is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for a bad movie you like. Yeah, no, we have, like, shit musicals and John Waters movies, like, artwork around our house. We understand camp. I I get it. (laughs) Doesn't mean I have to like it. (laughs) Right. And one thing that I do just want to throw in before we move on to talk about, like, 2019 is that... Earlier, as we're discussing about 2006, I did mention, like, you calling 2006 transphobic. In case people have not listened to that episode, um, why is Black Xmas 2006 transphobic? Because if you were to watch a movie like, say, Barbarian from this year, you can make somebody look like, you know, an abomination with prosthetics. You can make anybody look like any kind of monster you want. But all they did was be like, what if we just put a man in a in a in a wig and that's supposed to mean that he's like this monstrous inbred nightmare. Mm-hmm. And it just reads as yet another like man in a wig, man in a dress killer, even though it's technically not because the character's technically cis, but that's not how it scans. Exactly. So the reason that this becomes a, like a weirdly transphobic movie is that because this is a filmmaker saying, what is the most grotesque and terrifying type of woman? One that looks like a man. And while obviously Agnes is not a trans character, you're right. It scans that way. And the second it's pointed out to you, it's like, again, like I can't unsee it. And it makes me super fucking uncomfortable that they're presenting this quote unquote ugly woman as being the ultimate danger. And it just perpetuates a lot of bullshit. And I know there are plenty of people that will disagree and say like, um, actually, it's not transphobic. It fucking is. All of our faves are problematic. Just deal with it. Like, own it, understand it, and stop trying to shy away from it. Totally. Ho, 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 shit. Santa, please. So, we we know how you feel about 06. 
Let's talk about Black Christmas 2019 capsule thoughts. So I it's that time of year where you see horror Twitter people being like, oh, well, what do we think about 06 versus 2019? Um, and I choose not to read those threads because no good will come of it. But 2019, while not being connected to Billy in any way, like it's its own story. It's it's like the Halloween three of things, I suppose. But it carries the spirit of the original so much more than the sequel does. The- it has the right energy, the right uh, the, the right morals, the right content. All of it is so much more in line with what the original is. Then 06. The biggest crime that Black Christmas 2019 has is that it has a Black Christmas title. Yeah. Um, and we obviously had a very long talk with the women who made that movie and how the production on it was difficult. And That's how very polite. And how the <laughs> backlash to it was out of fucking control. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still is to this day. Um, I'm not going to say which movie it is, but there is currently a Christmas horror movie that just came out that apparently makes a massive jab at Black Christmas 2019, which like there's no need for that. There's no fucking need for that. Like, I, I don't know if you think you're being clever or cool, but when you shit on that movie, um, for them, like, especially when it comes to, like, people like to bring up the Diva Cup line in that movie a lot and point, like, oh, that's so cringy. And it's like, you know who else thinks that, si- that, that scene is really cringy? Fucking all right. Like, that's... Let, let's not go there. Like, you you don't need to shit on that movie. It's It's got plenty of haters already. I mean, in the time since that movie has come out, um, a lot of, uh, dare I say, very bad slashers have came out. Um, like the new Texas Chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Like two separate Halloween movies. <laughs> There's a lot of horror movies that I am comfortably not a fan of. And people will still find reasons to defend them. Because they're like, how can you, you just are mean to the slasher genre. I think it's just a really important addition to the canon of it. And yet those people will then say, actually, but also Black Christmas 2019 sucks. And I'm like, I wonder what the connective tissue is where we like the new Halloween movies and we like the new Texas Chainsaw, but we hate Black Christmas. It's because they hate women. I wonder why. That's what it is. And like... That's not to say that Black Christmas 2019 is a perfect film. It's not. It has a lot of problems. We talk about it on that episode. They didn't have the time or the resources to make this as good as they wanted it to. And they also went for something wildly different because they're like, we're not going to try to repeat 1974 because that's impossible. Yeah. And I think that that is a really smart way to to approach it. Yeah. And I think that movie has so much more better going for it and people shit on it because it is unapologetically about women Mm -hmm. it is unapologetically criticizing rape culture frat culture a lot of things that people think like oh no we we need to be more subtle about it like oh it's too preachy it's too heavy-handed fuck off that's the that's the times we live in that we live in now because people don't understand subtlety anymore you have to badger them over the head with it to get the fucking point across yeah like it's just it's it's so infuriating to me that this movie has been out for a couple of years now and people still go out of their way to shit on it when 06 is right there. 06 is an infinitely more harmful movie. I om- I almost wonder, uh, here, here's a question for you in like the Black Christmas trilogy. Um, if the 06 version didn't exist, would people be as mean to 2019 in the way that people were mean to Season of the Witch for a long time? Ooh, that's really interesting. Um, I think people might actually be meaner 
um, because a lot of people do hate 06, but 06 has so many defenders. It really does. Whereas like the defenders of 2019, we all kind of get written off as like woke SJW liberals. Like that tends to be how people view it. Like, oh, well, of course the person with green hair is going to like. Of course the person with pronouns in their bio. It's very much that kind of energy. Whereas that is not applied to people who defend 06. Um, and I think that is very telling. Like people who defend 06, it's usually like, oh, you like camp or oh, you like whatever. But if you defend 2019, it immediately turns into like some weird political pissing contest. And which that's is, weird Which is as so shit. weird because the original is also because the original very is political. so fucking political. The original is like, in all honesty, like more upfront about its feminism than even 2019 is. Especially for its time. Especially for its time. So I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like the amount of people that were like, 2019 Black Christmas went woke and i'm like what fucking movie did you watch in 74 did did, did your tv cut somehow not have the abortion scene in it because that's kind of a very important through line i mean it's kind of the most important part of jess's story aside from almost getting murdered yeah god so ridiculous it's kind of the biggest part of like the final girls arc (laughs) (laughs) so i mean it's it's, eh. i don't know i've seen people just be like well it's more subtle i'm like it's not but all right it's not subtle like it's not subtle at all i don't know what you're talking about when people say that it's subtle i think that it's just i here here's actually my thing is that um so if you were to uh, – so so a thing that I like to do is I like to listen to, you know, cheesy 70s pop. Like anything Cher was putting out. Like there, there's a really bad uh, album sheet with Greg Allman when they were going through their divorce. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of love it because even like really cheap, messy music like that that is like basically show tunes – feels more authentic than a lot of the pop music that exists out today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a matter of fresh ears. If you're there in the, t- if you were there in the moment, it's probably just as plastic as anything else is. Mm-hmm. I think that it's just a matter of different palette. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, everyone is very accustomed to the flavor of what politics look like in our current times. Like they they know what that's like, but there is something about like, Oh, well it's, it was a different flavor in the 70s that I have not gotten tired of. And that makes it more refreshing. That makes it more exciting. That makes it more subtle because I'm not picking up on the things that I'm inundated with every single day like I am here. I think that's a really, really good point. I think that that, I think you nailed it there. Thank you. (laughs) Not too bad for thinking on my feet sometimes. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, on that note, I think that sort of takes us out on Black Christmas. So Harmony, I know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Black Christmas is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you sending her on her own with her own ticket? Oh, it's a yes. This is, I said already in the beginning of the episode that this is the best movie we've ever covered. Um, And part of that's because it has the freedom of being R-rated, which a lot of our films don't. So it can get away with doing a lot of themes and topics that a lot of teen cinema can't. Um, I also think that since it's from the 70s, it has has a lot more room to run in the way that like more squeaky clean fare of like the 80s or 90s onward would. Um, I, I, I think it's just the right film at the right time. And it did everything perfect for like the start of the slasher genre, especially when there's so little teen cinema around this time that we can directly point to. I love Black Christmas so much. I I adore it. I adore 2019. End of sentence. (laughs) 
I also love it. This is such a seminal film. This is arguably one of the most important teen films ever made um, outside of even just the, the, the origins of the slasher. This is such an impactful movie. Um, I love it so very much. And I hope that anybody who had not seen it gave it a chance uh, for this episode. And I hope that you love it as much as we do. Uh, apologies if anyone else gets Billy Nightmares. Uh, and I guess welcome to the party, pal, because it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> also, shout out to Phil's boyfriend for being a Santa Claus who would swear in front of children. And he managed to live. Good for him. Yeah, you know one what? Of the, one of the best men in this movie. <laughs> one, of the, one of the few redeeming qualities we've got here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's dating Phil and she's very lovely. So She is great. He's probably just like a bit of an a-hole. But, like, not a bad guy. Yes. He did agree to be Santa. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, well, that takes us out on Black Christmas. If you want to follow the show on social media, we are on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Veloci underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, massive thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as the theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Black Christmas? So the musical identity of Black Christmas is kind of just like Christmas music. So I had to sort of be a little creative. So Peter plays piano. And also when I think of like Christmas, I think of like Christmas time, like Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. So I'm going with... Um, Dare I say a skewed version of that by plugging Rio Romero. Uh, this is somebody who I believe got like mildly famous on TikTok, um, but that's not where I found them. I just like, you know, sort of drunken uh, saloon cabaret piano. That's I, I'm, I'm a fan. But uh, Rio Romero released an EP earlier in the year called Good God, and it's got some marvelous songs on it. I particularly like Bet and in articulation from that but also this year they released a, a song called fuck the supreme court love it uh which i think also ties into the theme of this movie and have a previous album called obnoxious liberal the musical so relatable <laughs> i want to think that i really nailed this one <laughs> i think so too i think that that's great uh you played me a little bit before we started the show and i was like you know this tracks so this is good and there's some great piano Better piano playing than you, fucking Peter. <laughs> so that that's great. That's fun. Um, I know in our last episode we said, hey, guess what? Anna and the Apocalypse is next week. But holidays and scheduling means yep, that things got uh, shifted. we had to shuffle things. So now we're going to be joined by Matt Donato for that next week. Unless things happen again. <laughs> and if that happens, I will cry. <laughs> uh, it would be a bummer. But it's it's fine. I'm excited that we got to have this talk. And it, it, in a wonderful thing of happenstance, we ended up watching the movie twice in one day because it yeah. just was on. And you can't not watch it. Yeah. And also, like, if you've never seen this movie before, uh, this gives you more time to watch it before Christmas. Exactly. You know, share it with your family. Freak them out. Yeah, that's we're putting a spin on things. <laughs> All right, friends, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye.
This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.